This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a second episode of Reform This with your host, Dr. Zudi Jasser. It's great to have you back. It's great to be with you. I'm a former U.S. Navy officer, conservative, a patriot, physician, father, a husband, and an American Muslim. This is the first of its kind podcast, and join me for as we hold no punches and breach the many fault lines of the day between the West and the Islamic communities in the world. We'll cover timely and controversial issues on the homeland security front, foreign policy front, religious freedom, human rights, and general politics. If you're looking for hope, if you're looking for reform, And if you're looking for unapologetic confrontation of the ideas that threaten us, welcome to Reform This. This last week has been interesting. Uh, Many stories to talk about, and uh, in this time together, we'll begin navigating that terrain. And, you know, I look at the terrain that we cover as one of tough love, one that realizes that solution needs to come from within the house of Islam, but also needs to come with tough love that we hold me and my fellow co-religionists accountable to theocracy, to the ideas that are incompatible with Western freedom, democracy, our republic, our constitutional republic, and that we begin to expose the ideas that threaten us and radicalize Muslims every day to lead to that final endpoint that creates the Al-Qaeda's of the world, the ISIS's of the world, and any of those Muslims who, whether they live in Molambique, Paris, Chattanooga, San Bernardino, those Muslims that seek to attack us are not radicalized overnight, they're radicalized in a process. And every day we're seeing stories that we should be talking about in regular media. We should be dissecting and understanding to begin this long war, which I believe is going to be longer than the Cold War and more uh, uh, fraught with not only political correctness, but enabling our enemies if we don't get this right, if we don't thread the needle between Islam, Islamism, and democracy and freedom. This week, one of the stories I want to start with was a great write-up by Richard Pollack in The Daily Caller, in which he talked about how much the Persian Gulf sheiks have given to the Clinton Foundation, to the Clintons, Bill and Hillary, and he talked about the $100 million that he was just able to research and discuss that revealed that Bill and Hillary Clinton had received at least $100 million from autocratic Persian Gulf states and their leaders. And the question is, how does that undermine the candidate, the future president? How did it undermine the Secretary of State and the former president? And, you know, listen, 
immediately it seems pretty obvious that foreign money should undermine those who care about our country, who care that America should be first, should come first, and that our security should come first. So first is simply foreign agency. But even more than the allegiance with foreign agents, even more than the blind eye that they turn to the domestic slavery that happens in countries and cities like Dubai, the Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, even more than the hypocrisy of taking tens and hundreds of millions from countries that are theocratic Sharia states, is we need to understand exactly why these countries are investing so much money in the Clintons, investing and this is a bipartisan investment, by the way. Uh, I would remind you of an April 20th piece in the Washington Post that talked about the, the wide PR reach of the Saudi Arabian uh, government and how, from a bipartisan perspective, they bought PR uh, agencies to facilitate their influence upon uh, through lobby groups from both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, to facilitate arming the Saudis, to facilitate a policy which allowed us to turn a blind eye to domestic change. So, so what did they get in exchange for that? I'll tell you it's one thing. It is the suppression of free speech. It is the invocation of blasphemy laws in the West. So hundreds of millions of dollars while they domestically whip and flog citizens that try to reform their governments, that try to speak out for freedom and individual rights like Raif Bedoui or Walid Abu Khair, his attorney, who have been in jail now for years since trying to express words of freedom in Saudi Arabia in exchange for starting a group called Free Saudi Liberals. Raif Bedoui was flogged in front of the largest mosque in Jeddah for two weeks and then was it was stopped after two weeks of being flogged 50 flogs each Friday before the Friday prayer service and it was stopped because he was too sick to proceed and he still had a sense of a thousand lashes but this is somebody who tried to speak out inside Saudi Arabia outside the Saudis will spend hundreds of millions if not billions in order to suppress criticism of Islamism, of Wahhabism, of the ideologies that they perpetrate and spread all over the planet. Qatar, which is now home base and the central cancer cell for the Muslim Brotherhood, will spread the ideas of Islamism into Syria, radicalizing the Islamists, creating groups like ISIS and helping facilitate the fueling of the ideology of ISIS. So that money buys not only the spreading of those ideas, because as they fund the groups, they will fuel the groups that are, you know, uh, in harmony with the Islamism from their country of the Brotherhood, and they will deny and allow to wither on the vine the more secular, free, individualistic groups that tried to fight against the rebellion, with the rebellion against the Assad regime and also against the Islamists. So, as we talk about the foreign funding that the Clinton Foundation got, look also at the projects that the Clinton Foundation did. They have a a project, a uh, number of projects that they do in Africa and around the planet. Please 
look into their website and you'll see very, very little done in Muslim-majority countries. And when it is done, it's not about Islamism. It's not about political Islam. It's not about reform. It's not about Wahhabism or all the ideas that we need to confront of the Sharia state of Saudi Arabia or of Qatar. No, these are occasionally simply about educating women or uh, most often they avoid completely the Arab world. They've done a couple of programs in Afghanistan or in Pakistan. Um, but uh, even icons like Malala that uh, won the Nobel Prize for the, that poor 16-year-old girl was shot coming out of a school uh, to send a message from the Taliban in Pakistan that they did not want women, they do not want women to be educated. And the Clinton Foundation did recognize uh, her, her courage. Uh, but at the end of the day, how much money did they spend on countering the Islamist deep theocracy and theological underpinnings of political Islam of the Sharia state that is Pakistan, that is Iran, that is Saudi Arabia. They have not. So the Clintons, back to uh, Pollock's work at the Daily Caller, have received upwards of $85 million in donations from five Persian Gulf states and their monarchs, according to their foundation's website. Activist groups like our American Islamic Forum for Democracy have charged that the five states, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates, committed numerous human rights abuses. And the issue of these human rights abuses, again, is not just that the Clinton Foundation are hypocrites for taking the tens of millions, but they turn around and they're not using it to confront those ideas. They're using it to confront issues unrelated to the Arab world, dumping the money into water projects and into uh, health-related programs and other things uh, that are completely unrelated to the deepest reform necessaries in in allowing the the uh, Arab awakening to proceed. They had a big project called NoCeilings.com, and it's about the advancement of women. And I would ask any of you to look in there and see if there's any actual work against honor killings and honor abuse done in the name of Islam or Islamism in so many Muslim countries. None. The Clinton Foundation are just a bunch of hypocrites and are a a, a teaching moment for Americans to understand why these petro-Islamists spend the amount of money that they do because they get a lot in exchange for that money. They get the blind eye. They get a uh, State Department, a White House that ignores the human rights abuses in these countries. And most importantly, they get blasphemy laws invoked by our political leaders in the greatest democracy in the world. We cannot and we do not speak against Islamism or Wahhabism. We employ Muslim Brotherhood Legacy Group leaders through uh, these foundations. And you'll find, as Pollock reports and others have, uh, a, a former uh, Clinton Global Initiative employee then became a, a one of the top leaders in the Muslim Brotherhood once the Egyptian revolution happened. So they are very intimately related to the Islamists. And it is no surprise and no coincidence that by avoiding the Islamist ideology and by not countering it, they then end up working with the allies of the Islamist movements in Egypt and Qatar and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. 
and thus working against the interests of America, against those who want to be free and becoming major obstacles to reform. That's what these governments get in exchange for that money. You need to understand that. You need to understand that it's not just about foreign agents, which is a significant problem, but it's not just about foreign agency. It is about suppressing free speech of reformists inside those countries and in America, suppressing the discussion against political Islam and the Sharia state in the United States of America and preventing the very important the most important discourse of the day. So when we come back, we're going to look at not only the monies that have been spent, but now start to look at what Al Jazeera talks about, what Kurdawi has, and why the Muslim Brotherhood is not so moderate and uh, is one of the most radical ideological uh, threats to the West that we've seen in a long time. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, brought to you by Blaze Radio and the work of reformists like Zudi Jasser. For those who've been saying, we're the voices of moderate Islam, we're starting to bring it to you with this podcast and so many others as I introduce you to the voices that have been tried to be suppressed by the um, Islamist mafia around the world. What did we learn last segment? We learned that, you know, politicians like Hillary Clinton and so many others that have had their skids greased by the millions, the hundreds of millions from the petrodollars of the Saudis, of the Qataris, and others into their coffers of the Clinton so-called global initiative. And I say so-called because they seem to ignore one part of the world, which was the monarchies, the Islamist governance and, and dictatorships that they seem to ignore. So these governments, when you not only identify that they're taking money from radical regimes they're doing it because why do these governments give them this much money it's because in exchange they get blasphemy coverage they get a suppression of any criticism of the ideas not only within their countries but it marginalizes the voices of reform and no longer can muslim reformists have a seat at the platform as large think tanks like the club like the Clinton Global Initiative, begin to take money, they no way could highlight the voices of reformists in the Muslim reform movement. So when you see us talk about the negative impact of these hundreds of millions, don't let President Clinton lecture us as he did a few months ago when he 
pounded his fist at the lectern and said, oh, this money doesn't affect anything we do. It has no impact on our work, and we continue to do good work around the planet. I say, baloney. It does. They turn a blind eye to Qatar, to Saudi Arabia, to Iran, to Syria, to Egypt. And when they work in Egypt, they work with the Islamists, like the Muslim Brotherhood operatives. And we've seen this as their Clinton Global Initiative representative in Cairo became one of the top spokespeople for the Muslim Brotherhood government once they took over after the revolution. And ultimately, the most important thing, I think, as we look at what these dollars do, it is important to realize that the fruit of Clinton's own policies basically empowered the old regimes. It empowers the status quo. It empowers the global establishments. And, you know, look back at the four years that Secretary Clinton had as Secretary of State. You know, I could not see anywhere where she empowered reformers. And ultimately, they empowered that global establishment. And that global Islamist establishment of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation suffocated the peoples of these countries for generations. And Hillary Clinton is part of that global establishment of monarchs, autocrats, and dictators. And lastly, you know, to, to be equally bipartisan in this criticism, you have to realize that the Republicans are not strangers to Saudi money. Uh, as it's reported, you have folks like uh, Haley Barber, former head of the RNC, who received a hefty six-figure check up to 500000 for one year of PR work last year for the Saudis. And we'll get to that a little bit later, this uh, great legislation that was just passed by the Senate. And I mean it great. I'm not being sarcastic. We'll talk about it in a second. But also the presidential libraries that are filled with Saudi money that has built them, both uh, be it uh, Republican or Democrat former presidents. And uh, lastly, uh, the present day, I hope we hold Mr. Trump accountable. Trump Dubai is due to open next year in 2017, a, a very expensive uh, um, effort to be led by petro-Islamists of Dubai like Sanjari and others that he's been in business with. And, you know, I can't help but ask, why has Mr. Trump been so silent on Saudi Arabia, on Dubai, on Qatar, and other petro-Islamists? Sure, he uses demagogic words about not letting Muslims in and and uh, appears to be nativist in his comments, which, you know, fine, is strong and speaks strongly against ISIS. But what is his position on the Islamist influence of these billions of petrodollars? We've not heard that spoken at all, and hardly by any candidates. And I think a lot of it has to do with the influence of their petrodollars. I do think that also as we look, you know, one of the things that reformists do that uh, people seem to ignore. We at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy have looked at the influence of sheikhs like Sheikh Yusuf Kardawi. And I know that sounds like some, you know, odd, small-time sheikh. This guy has a show called Sharia and Life that he's run on Al Jazeera Weekly for decades. He has a following over 60 million followers on that program. He's based on a Qatar. He's one of the leading spiritual leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood movement. And he has a website called Qaradawi.net. And in that website, that he also writes quite a bit with Al Jazeera, he has written in Arabic 
multiple times about what he views as the Islamic democracy that he'd like to see us end and the Islamic State. We had translated through the work that some of our interns had done in translation back in 2009, a, a a long series of articles that he posted and reposted and continued to post to teach the people of the Middle East about what he perceived as Islamic democracy. He said, quote, The Islamic State is a civil state which derives its authority from Islam. The Islamic State is in line with the essence of democracy. Oddly, and he goes on to talk about how it is also the ultimate of democracies. This was two years before the Arab Awakening. And now what do we see evolve from the Arab Awakening? ISIS, the Islamic State. They don't even bother in dealing with elections. But as we know, many Islamists, like we see with the AKP in Turkey, which is a, a Islamist theocratic movement uh, that took over Turkey democratically by elections, but... As we know with Islamists, and we see the Khomeinists in Iran, those democratic movements are one vote, one time for the Islamists, and that's it. And I think if you look at Qadawi's writing in Arabic, he's been telegraphing for the Middle East how they can take over these governments democratically. And to them, democracy is all about elections. It's not about minority rights. Look at his Arabic you know, just like in, in the Cold War, we were looking at Soviet writing, Russian uh, Russian writing, and understanding what their war theory was. Uh, but because of political correctness now, we can't do that. Even the few Sharia experts in Washington have to stay in hiding. And those of us who are working on translating some of these writings of so-called Middle Eastern Democrats who are really Islamists often, and yet the true secularist liberals in the Middle East get no voice. They get no attention because the two heads of the snake, be it the monarchy, monarchical dictatorships, or the secular military dictatorships, both want to decimate the secular liberal Democrats versus the Islamic Democrats, which believe in Islamism, but through a populist way to be won democratically in a one-way street. And Qardawi telegraphed that in 2009 in his translations. And I think you look and you'll see that his writings not only telegraphed Islamic democracy, but repeatedly talked about the evils of capitalism and the evils of Western materialism. And basically talked about how capitalism spawns materialism and ultimately connected Islamism with socialism. And that the two, the nanny state concept, are wedded. And I think this should be relevant to all of you. How, how many have truly understood what the connection is, why the left in America is so wedded to the Islamists? Well, if you read Qadawi in Arabic, you'd understand. They're wedded to them because they're both collectivists. They believe in government addressing people in a collective. The Islamists do so through faith identity that somehow all Muslims must think and act alike. They can't diverge on theological interpretations. They can't diverge on the role of government in personal life. And similarly, socialists believe in the collectivization of the economy, of the economic interest and of the need for government to provide for the people and not through the individual sustenance of free markets. 
And I think this is where you see the Islamists work so tightly with the socialists. Why is Bernie Sanders, the far and away, the the champion of the Islamists domestically? Because they're both collectivists. He's the champion of the Palestinian movement. He's the champion of every collective movement he could find in America. And the Islamists have worked closely. And Qardawi in 2009 translated, if you read his Arabic stuff, you'd realize that this was what he's been teaching Islamists. And he's not alone. He's got tons of imams and sheikhs that spread his word, the so-called Al-Azhar Imams, which is the main sort of teaching center of Islamist political Islamic thought, and also the Saudi Imams that also believe in collectivization. And I think, you know, if you look, he further said, liberalism, meaning absolute freedom, is also unacceptable to us. There is no absolute freedom in the whole existence. Every freedom in the world is bound by some restrictions. And he goes on. So he's teaching his Muslim followers that liberalism as we know it in the West is evil. And, you know, I'm taking the time to tell you about this because do we have a counteroffensive? Where's the Muslim voices exposing this as totalitarianism, that Qardawi is a fascist imam, that Qardawi has preached Holocaust denial, he's preached the uh, um, defeat of the Jews as recently as 2011-2012 that the, the spread of the revolutions would take Jerusalem along with it away from the state of Israel. He's called for acts of terror against the state of Israel, acts of terror against Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is why he's not allowed to travel into London, into the United States or elsewhere in the West. So while on the one hand, our homeland security gets it and bans one of the world's preeminent Sunni sheikhs from travel, on the other hand, our information operations Currently, how many Americans know who Yusuf Qardawi is? Imagine in the Cold War, no Americans knowing who Karl Marx or any of the founding fathers of communist theory or even the leaders of the Soviet uh, empire were. Uh, that was unheard of. We were studying that, and yet today very few are studying the impact of Qardawi. When we come back, we'll continue to look at where are the inflection points that we can begin to push back and spread the ideas of freedom to defeat the ideas of radical fascist sheikhs like Qardawi, the Qatari regime, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, and all the other cancers that are metastasizing and accepted by so many politicians on both the left and the right in the United States. Reaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. And then we go back to Mr. Character himself. I mean, if you're looking for a guy that you can trust, I mean, that you can leave your drink behind and know that there is no chance that he would even just pour a little extra tequila in there just to get you a little more, you know, in the party mood. I don't think anybody thinks that Bill Clinton is a man of deep and abiding character. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network.
Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. And I hope if you're looking for hope and you are waiting to hear those voices of reform within the Muslim community that want to take ownership, want to take responsibility for the problems within not only our community, but within our faith interpretations and the the Islamist mafia that leads not only domestically, but globally. I hope you'll find it here. Uh, Last segment we were talking about, and I hope you begin to understand the depth of the reasons why think tanks and governments and others working so closely with the petro-fascist Islamists of Qatar, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, and other monarchs runs deep in them preventing the free speech necessary, in them stopping the heretics like myself and others from speaking out against their political Islam and their theocracy. I think another victory that we've seen was just uh, uh, this week, we've seen the Senate finally okay a bill to let 9-11 families sue Saudi Arabia. And ultimately, this is now going to the House. Uh, The House has uh, expressed some concerns uh, and stalled it initially, but the bill's authors, Senator Cornyn from Texas and Senator Schumer from New York, two broadly differing uh, individuals who came together and their common understanding of the threat of the Saudis, uh, were able to pass this bill this week in a rare act, and they called it the Justice Against the Sponsors of Terrorism Act. It's a bill that would prevent the Saudis, uh, the Saudi Arabia, and other countries alleged to have terror ties from invoking their sovereign immunity in federal court. Yes, it would change uh, a, a, a long-standing international law regarding sovereign immunity. Uh, the president, uh, as, as we would expect, he constantly gives waivers to Saudi Arabia, as actually it's not just Obama, but other presidents have done so in the name of uh, national security. I call that in the name of our gas tanks. Uh, But the bottom line is uh, they call, uh, they give Saudi Arabia a waiver in the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. We've constantly called for them to be declared a CPC, and the State Department agrees, declares them a country of particular concern, one of the worst offenders of religious freedom, which should have sanctions follow as a result. The State Department agrees, gives them sanctions, recommends them to get sanctions, but then the White House passes a waiver saying because of national security, they doesn't have to apply to them. So now we see the Senate stepping forward and passing a law unanimously by unanimous uh, voice vote on the floor. Didn't even need a vote to be cast uh, officially, but simply by voice vote, it was passed unanimously. And ultimately, this will open them up to being sued. Uh, the families, uh, as uh, Senator Cornyn said, these, I'm sorry, Senator Schumer said, these families have lit a candle. Their mission is not just to bring justice to themselves, but to send a loud message to foreign governments. If you help create terrorism on American soil, you're going to be brought to justice. And, you know, the Saudis for months have been trying to prevent this from being passed. They threatened that they'd pull out all their interests from private corporations like Citibank and others that they're invested in. And the senators appropriately said they called their bluff. They said that's nonsense. They're not going to take a huge financial loss just to make a point, as Cornyn said. 
bottom line is, is uh, if they participate in terrorism, they have not, you know, they should have something to fear. If they didn't, then they should defend themselves in court and they have nothing to fear. And I, I can't tell you how much this relates to what we were just talking about before. These militants like Al-Qaeda, it was not a coincidence that 15 out of the 19 came from Saudi Arabia. It's not a coincidence, you know. If you read Graham Wood's piece from The Atlantic that came out in spring 2015 about what ISIS really wants, he says it's Islamic. Why is it Islamic? Because it's exactly like the ideology that is pushed out with billions, pushed out into the schools and the justice system in Saudi Arabia. So ultimately, yeah, the Saudis better be nervous about this legislation. Unfortunately, their ally in our White House, President Obama, will likely veto this. We'll wait and see if he does, but I hope the American people wake up and and protest vociferously against any veto and to have the Saudis become accountable for the radicalization, not only for 9-11, which we continue to need to make them pay for what they've done to create al-Qaeda and now what they're doing to create ISIS. Not only is it ideology this time, the money, they are feeding money directly, not to the secular free liberals in Syria, the Qataris and the Saudis, due to the general anesthesia that our president has been under either on the Gulf course or completely asleep, we've allowed the Saudis and the Qataris to fuel the Islamists of Syria that has basically created uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is al-Qaeda-affiliated group, and so many other radical Islamist groups, and then many of them coalesce to form ISIS. Do you know there's been more beheadings in Saudi Arabia in the last uh, six months than ISIS did? Why is that? Because they use the same interpretations of Sharia law. Their judges act by the same ideology that those who offend and who use their interpretations of Islam in vain and criticize them should be destroyed and killed. And that's what's happened to the Christians, to the Yazidis, to some of the Shiite minority, the Ismailis and others who get in the way of the ISIS sheikhs like Sheikh Baghdadi. I think it's important to know that this legislation now will allow the families of 9-11 to begin to begin to get compensated for the evil that didn't just come from Al-Qaeda, which was a symptom, but from the cancer itself of the Saudi government. I think it's time that they pay up. And, you know, listen, ultimately we are not going to see a solution to radical Islam until we see regime change in Saudi Arabia. They're not going to slowly, you know, the, the theory right now is that somehow slow reforms with a woman sitting on a council, you know, they, they say, oh, we are advancing. We have women now on city councils in this small town in southern Saudi Arabia or this other town in northeastern. We now have Shia on the eastern coast that are very involved in their own governance. Uh, these are all platitudes and, and, and window dressing. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, this is not reform. The Saudis are taking us for fools. They've been doing it for generations they tell our presidents and our secretaries of states and our ambassadors that uh, they will change, but ultimately it's complete hypocrisy and, and false change. 
And the Arab awakening has shown that the people will continue to demand change. The, there are many reformists in prison uh, who share many of our ideas, like I mentioned uh, with Rafe Bedoui, who uh, has been flogged in front of a mosque in Jeddah and now sits in prison and his wife in Canada uh, tries to get him released. And there are thousands like him. Where's America? Where is the land of the free in at least screaming from the rooftops about the evil, today's evil empire? You know, one of the books that had a huge impact on me was uh, Natan Sharansky's uh, book on democracy. And, you know, in it he says he knew that he would be free from the prisons in the Soviet Union when he heard that President Reagan had said that the Soviet Union was the evil empire. I think those sitting in prisons in Saudi Arabia and Iran and across so many theocracies and dictatorships, if they hear our president begin to call the organization of Islamic cooperation this neo-caliphate based in Saudi Arabia, once they hear them called the evil empire and they hear America declare an ideological war against political Islam, they will know that they will be free from the shackles of these theocracies. So when we come back, let's talk about what it means now that London has a Muslim mayor. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Trump's naming his Supreme Court picks is, whether or not you like him, a smart move. It shows a serious guy with serious interests making some serious suggestions about the things conservatives care about most. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thanks for staying with me in this, our last segment of our second week of this new podcast that I hope gives you a sense of hope. I hope it uh, gives you uh, the voice of ideas that you've been waiting for from within the Muslim community, patriotic Muslim that's ready to begin a that has been fighting a jihad against jihad, as we call it. Uh, there's nothing that threatens the tw- the West in the 21st century more than militant Islam around the planet, whether it's Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Syria, especially is the hottest point right now. Saudi Arabia's ideology continues to spread, and all of these are still symptoms. In And, you know, until Americans understand where we are right now in this time in history in the West— that Islam has not gone through an enlightenment like the West did with a separation of church or with Muslims, mosque, and state, that there has not been an American-type revolution, if you will, against theocrats, and that until we take sides within the House of Islam, the vacuums that were opportunities of the Arab awakening have turned into hellholes of militancy, of vacuums that are being filled 
from a cauldron that was brewed by these military dictatorships and fascist mafia that's been running the Islamic world for almost 80 years, if not more. We were talking last segment about how great this legislation is, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act that the Senate passed. It gives basically families a sense of redemption, families that have suffered from the the largest attack on American soil since World War II. And ultimately, we need to defend their right to sue the central cancer cell of radical Islam, which is Saudi Arabia, and other countries that may be responsible for fostering, fueling, and contributing to global Islamist terror. And I think it's interesting that um, if you look at the response from the Obama administration, Ernest, uh, Josh Ernst told uh, the media that uh, this legislation would change long-standing international law regarding sovereign immunity and the President of the United States continues to harbor serious concerns that this legislation would make the United States vulnerable in other court systems around the world. Um, hello, Josh. What is, you need to do some homework. What's libel tourism? We're already vulnerable. There have been many, read Rachel Ehrenfeld's uh, uh, book on uh, the libel tourism and, and many brave souls like herself. Uh, I've been threatened uh, back uh, years ago in 2007 uh, by uh, Islamist sheikhs that ran a global charity that we had the temerity to write about and speak about in the international press. These folks, led by the Saudis, have intimidated Muslim voices for for decades and generations by suing and trying to claim libel and it's called libel tourism and now josh ernst wants to um tell us that this is now they're going to veto the senate legislation because it's going to uh, hold us uh, accountable this is this is nonsense uh, it already ex exists so mr ernest uh, do your homework and uh, stop lecturing us. We already are vulnerable in Europe and all over the world from the, the Islamist petrodollars that are suing us for so-called libel, which is another euphemism for blasphemy, is really what they're suing us for. Um, I ultimately was never sued, but I was threatened uh, as such. And since I didn't have any assets in uh, London, where they were suing me from and where the petro-Islamists were threatening me, it was not an issue. But the bottom line is is that uh, we have to uh, stand up for the families of 9-11 and, and please knock off this nonsense of saying that it somehow opens the court systems, uh, which are already wide open for the Saudis to exploit. Let's talk about uh, what you know I think is on everyone's mind now is uh, what does it mean now that the, the Londoners have elected a British uh, Muslim as their new mayor. Uh, you know, I think it uh, it says a lot about their society. Uh, and I think, first of all, make no mistake, the fact that London now has a mayor that's Muslim, that's the son of a bus driver, there's no doubt that that narrative, I hope, at least at the minimum, dispels any of these Islamist groups' nonsense about how much bigotry exists 
in the West against Muslims, it shows you that that is just malarkey. It's nonsense. And the bottom line is, is that if anything, this will, uh, this man got uh, uh, more votes than uh, m- many candidates, I believe, in, in, in quite a while. So the bottom line is, is that that bigotry might exist, or what they call Islamophobia, right? That term that I hate because it means nonsense. It's about Islam. It's not. It's about Muslims. It's about individuals. It's not about Islam. Again, another attempt at invoking blasphemy laws. But what does it mean? You know. But the fact that he is Muslim doesn't mean that we just accept what he's done before that, and that we don't use the filter of understanding. You know, what is the role he's played in the ideological war we're fighting? And the bottom line is, is his track record is not a pretty one. His track record is not about calling out Islamism. I couldn't even find one quote where Sadiq Khan used the term Islamism. I couldn't even find uh, one area that showed, other than his defense of gay rights and his claim that he's a liberal and his association with the liberal platform of the Labour Party, uh, the the bottom line is is yes he did try to uh, uh, stay to the right of Jeremy Corbyn and uh, which isn't hard to do for a, a Hamas sympathizer but uh, the bottom line is uh, and I'm talking about Corbyn not about Sadiq but you know the the bottom line is is that if you're going to lead one of the largest capitals in Europe of in the free world and you're going to be Muslim, I would hope that this Muslim would become, who set himself up to become a leader in the war against Islamism, would be somebody who can champion the cause of liberty against political Islam. Unfortunately, it's somebody who has come to his position as a result of preaching victimization, as a result of defending radicals in court. Not that many of those radicals, including my good friend Majid Nawaz, uh, said in his piece in which, he, in a nuanced way, said that uh, Sadiq is, he owes him a lot because he got him out of jail in Egypt and defended him, but also said that he's chosen some very concerning alliances over time. Uh, but, you know, I have to tell you, it's probably easier for me to sit here in the United States of America and criticize the mayor of London than many of those Muslims now that have to work with him as the most powerful individual in London who also live in London. So, I can see possibly that Majid may be limited by that, uh, and even reformers. But even with that, his piece in the Daily Beast, I think, was no great endorsement. Majid, uh, who uh, has been really one of the leaders in the West from the Muslim community, in calling out radical Islam, his book Radical is a fantastic accounting of what we're up against in fighting against political Islam, and his foundation, Quilliam Foundation, has done fantastic and continues to do great counterterrorism and counter-ideology work. But, you know, I think if you look at the mayor, it is important for us to make it clear that this, uh, probably now one of the most powerful Muslims in the West, if you also consider, I mean, how is he any different than Congressman Keith Ellison? And I have a whole chapter in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, about Mr. Ellison. And, uh, you know, listen, here you have a member of Congress, just like Andre Carson from Indiana, who's really done nothing against political Islam, has never talked about reform, has been an apologist for every other one of the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, continues to raise money for hundreds of 
fundraisers of the Council on American Islamic Relations and other victim obsessed grievance groups that pretend to speak for the Muslim community when in fact are simply diversionary groups that try to keep America away from focusing on the deep reforms necessary within the Islamic mindset and Islamic consciousness. And uh, Ellison has raised money for CARE, even though the FBI continues to perceive uh, CARE to be persona non grata. There's still standing policy that CARE cannot be worked with, with from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, thanks to uh, direct queries from Senator Kyle here in Arizona. But the bottom line is, is that Congressman Ellison, even though he is a uh, an icon in the Muslim community because of his position in Congress, has been a huge liability to reform. And I have a sense, I have a guess, that so will Mayor Sadiq Khan. He will not. His track record has shown nothing that he's going to be a reformer. He tried to get Louis Farrakhan, one of the most fascist, racist uh, Islamists uh, from the Nation of Islam, who is an, a, a vicious anti-Semite, tried to get him the rights to come to England even though he had been barred. He has worked with organizations like CAGE, which is a discredited uh, counter-terrorism or Muslim organization, which turned out to be Islamist sympathizer. Um, and, you know, Khan has no statements on record against Hezbollah, the Muslim Brotherhood, condemning the ideology and governments of Saudi Arabia and Iran. He actually went on Iranian television and called groups like Quilliam Uncle Tom's. So from where I sit, it's sort of mandatory that our political leaders in the West, let alone Muslims, who be looked upon as resources to be openly and unabashedly anti-Islamist and to be reformers against any Sharia state, what has he said against the Sharia courts in London that continue to glorify honor abuse and uh, minimize the rights of women within the West? What has Sadiq Khan said about Mozambique and how it held a cell in safe harbor for months and then allowed them the capabilities to commit a second act of terror? You would think somebody like Sadiq Khan would have been on record immediately calling for the exposure of those who facilitated the attack of one cell twice in the West because of the safe harbor in a Muslim enclave in Mozambique. So I think it's important to understand why Prime Minister Cameron said that he has, that uh, Sadiq has given oxygen to Islamists. We need to understand that we have to be, if we love our Muslim communities as I do, then we have to be giving them tough love and not just celebrate, but also celebrate critically new leaders of the Muslim community. And Sadiq Khan is one of those. And unfortunately, I wasn't cheering his election. I think that uh, he has been a liability to reformists, but we'll see. Maybe as mayor, he'll be a, uh, a, a new reformer. And uh, we'll begin to bring the anti-Islamist element of the Muslim community to the table to marginalize the Islamists. Maybe he'll begin to continue the programs that Prime Minister Cameron has highlighted in which uh, he began to marginalize the old Islamists that failed and begin to call out the ideology of Islamism as Prime Minister Cameron has begun to do. So 
I hope going into the next week that uh, think about these uh, very important issues of our day and we'll continue to bridge that divide between the Islamic world, the Islamists, and the land of freedom here in the West. This is Zudi Jasser for Reform This. Thank you for joining me again in this what is the beginning of a revolution. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.